Amen. Well, we're studying our way through Philippians here. Paul, the apostle, writing this letter to the church of Philippi. We noted that Paul is under house arrest here. The Romans are carting him around from place to place. He's standing before leaders. He's giving testimony to the gospel. He's in chains. And yet, even in that stressful, dire situation of losing his liberty, of actually having his life on the line, realize they're evaluating him to see if he's committed sedition or treason against Rome, and eventually they're going to take his life. And increasingly, Paul is becoming aware of this, that he's being poured out, as we sung this morning, as a drink offering. And while he is being poured out, he is writing these letters to encourage these churches that he loves that the Holy Spirit's used him to plant, and he's doing it with joy. We said that Philippians is the epistle of joy. When you can be in chains, when you can lose your liberty, when your life can literally be on the line and you still have joy, that's when you figured out joy. Amen? Usually we could have everything going right, Lewis, and one thing goes wrong, and that's our joy for the day, man. It only takes one thing sometimes, one crossword from our spouse, one, you know, comment from our boss, one driver in front of us on the Taconic. There goes all the joy. And Paul's in chains here, yet he is full of joy. It's bubbling out of him. It's, it's coming out in his writing here, and it's an encouragement to the Philippians, to the body of Christ, and to us thousands of years later. Now, let me read to you Philippians 1, 3 through 7, and we'll jump right in. Paul says this, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for y'all. Did you know Paul was Southern? He just said it right there, y'all. Verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, listen to verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. Powerful text here today, and Paul is encouraging the church, and he's doing it with joy. He mentions joy in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy. He starts off in verse 3 by mentioning the concept of thankfulness. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Now, being thankful is a huge part of being a Christian. Well, let me try that on this side over here. Being thankful is a huge part of being a Christian. If we are saved and forgiven and in the grace of God and our sins have been taken away and we're not thankful, there's something wrong. If Christians have to be thankful in all things. The truth is, if God never did one more thing for us, if he never answered one more prayer, if he never gave us one more blessing, what he's done for us just in the cross through Jesus Christ is enough for us to be thankful for many lifetimes. The fact that you and I don't have to pay the price or the penalty for our sin. That's enough to get us out of bed every day with a thankful heart. Look, if you woke up this morning and you have breath in your lungs, be thankful. If you woke up this morning and your name wasn't in the obituary column, be thankful. Amen. If you woke up this morning and God's still on the throne, Jesus is still Lord, God still got you in the palm of his hand, be thankful this morning. Don't let the enemy trick you and steal your joy because you refuse to have a thankful heart. There's always something to be thankful for. Have you ever been in a, a bad spot or a bad mood and someone says, there's always something to be thankful for? Doesn't it just irritate you in that moment? 
Uh, I would be thankful if you'd stop talking and go away. <laughs> you know, but the truth is, Pastor Mike, there's always something to be thankful for. Reminds me of a story of a man who went to his rabbi for wisdom, and he complained that life was unbearable. He said, Rabbi, there are nine of us living in one tiny apartment. It's unbearable. What should we do? The rabbi stroked his beard and thought for a while. He said, take your goat and move it into the apartment and let it live with you. The man resisted. He didn't like that idea, but the rabbi insisted, do as I say and come back in one week. A week later, the man came back looking worse than when he came the first time. And he said, we cannot stand it, rabbi. The goat is filthy. He's impossible to live with. The rabbi said, go home and let the goat back outside and come back in one week. One week later, the man came back radiant, glowing. He said, life is wonderful. There is no goat, and there's only nine of us living in the apartment. <laughs> you see... Thankfulness is a matter of perspective. Thankfulness is a state of mind. And in the, in, the, uh, in the essence of it, thankfulness becomes a choice. You and I can choose to be thankful. Oh, this is so hard. This situation is so hard. The money's so tight or this is so stressful. But you know what? At least there's no goat. <laughs> it can always get worse. And we can always be thankful. So thankfulness here is a theme. Paul starts out and he says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. He's expressing this thankfulness. He's reminding us to be uh, thankful for something very specific. Look, he says, I'm thankful what? In all remembrance of you. Of you. Of you. What's Paul saying? I'm thankful for the body of Christ. I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul wants us to remind us today that as Christians, we should be thankful for the gift of each other. Come on, church. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but trust me, all our brothers and sisters are blessing, and, and they are a blessing to us. Amen? Two people, praise God. The rest of you can't stand each other. You know, as soon as this is over, you're going to run out the door so you don't have to talk to anybody. No, we are a blessing. We are a gift to each other, amen? The very fact that we have each other to talk to and encourage one another and to just have fun together with, amen, that is a gift. Sometimes we forget that the body of Christ is a gift. Last night we got together in the, our men's group and we, we, uh, we had a barbecue, very spiritual time of barbecuing, hallelujah. And then we had a fire together, and we just prayed together. We had just an awesome time. You say, you, you know, what was that? That was us enjoying the gift of each other. Man, and if you weren't there, I'm telling you, you missed out. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs. We had a lot of calories. Hallelujah. And we did some praying, amen. And maybe I'll share a little bit of that later. But uh, we got to realize the body of Christ is a tremendous gift to the in individual believer. It offers companionship, fellowship, wisdom. Man, if, if you don't know something as a, as a young person, as a, you know, someone who can go to a seasoned saint and get wisdom, what a gift that is. We have the fivefold ministries in operation here. We have preaching and teaching and worship and the, and the prophetic. Every service we have, you know, a move of God, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Do you realize what a huge gift of encouragement that is? Amen. We have theological safety, 2,000 years of sound doctrine that's come up through the church. We have spiritual, emotional, and physical support, just to name a few. And that all comes from the body of Christ. 
You know, if there's one thing in that time of separation during COVID that I learned to appreciate more and more is the gift of each other. When we were finally allowed out to see each other, even though, you know, they were forcing us to mask up, but I could see you there. Oh, it's good to see you. You wave from afar, six feet. Thank God for the body of Christ. Thank God for the gift of each other. Paul is showing us we need to be thankful. Now, uh, I, I want to say something here. We need to learn to be thankful for each other uh, and make the time to fellowship with one another and build relationships with each other. It's not enough to say hi and goodbye. It's not enough to come to service and then run out the door. I know there's some, there's some people that are like jackrabbits. As soon as it's over, they're out the door. I've chased some of you that I had to talk to out, and I caught you in the parking lot. You're, you're fast. But you know what? We need to take the time to linger, to say hello, to introduce ourselves to one another. Hello, to have lunch together, to invite each other over. Uh, am I getting any traction with this here? We can't just come together and say we're the church and then flee in great haste in every different direction and not spend. No, we've got to build relationship with each other. That's the glue that sticks the body of Christ together. When you say, I, don't, I didn't sign up for that. Well, you didn't sign up. Just do it. Because the Bible wants us to be one as, as he is one with the Father. And that, that only comes through intimacy that's built through relationship. So the body of Christ offers us so much. And we have to do our part. Uh, it's possible for us to focus so much on reaching the lost. And so much time and energy is reaching on courting and converting unbelievers that we neglect the body of Christ itself. Think about that. Oh, we're going to save the world, but are we one? Are, uh, is our church healthy? When we save them and bring them in, uh, are we functional enough to develop them into disciples, or do we have dysfunction in our own house? Come on, church. And we've got to take the time. You know, yes, we've got to reach the lost. Yes, we've got to make converts. That's the mission of the church. But you know what? I believe that we need to develop relationships with each other First, most of our fellowship should be with those who are of like precious faith. And I say it's almost 80-20 or 70-30, that at least 70% of the time you need to be around other believers, having your faith build up and building relationship, and then 30% of the time taken out of the overflow of that and shining your light among men. Listen to what 2 Peter 1.1 says. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained, listen, like precious faith, which us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. That term like precious faith means people that believe in Jesus and are born again and filled with the Holy Spirit just like you and I. Those people are super special to us. Amen? Why? Because I don't care how close you are to a person. I don't care if you're part of their family or you have their last name. Listen, if they're not born again and you are, there's always a little bit of division between you. Because when you become a Christian, you become part of God's own family. And you have a unique relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. An intimacy that can't, a depth of intimacy that's not there in any other relationship. If all you hang around with is secular people who don't know the Lord, listen, I understand you, you want to reach them for Christ, but you've got to be around your brothers and sisters first. Those with like precious faith develop intimacy and relationship with them. 
Wow. Was that a hard sell? No, some of you are just looking at me. You know, the body of Christ is such a blessing, and sometimes I think we miss it. The things that you'll find in each other, the, the, you know, to have somebody to call, to have somebody to pray with, to have somebody to laugh with, amen, to have somebody who you don't have to be worrying about, man, if they die today, I'm never going to see them again. Wow. Thank you, Father. Verse 4, Paul says, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. So, uh, you know, we get the thankfulness part. We get the gift of each other part. But what about verse 4? Always offering prayer with joy. There's that mention of joy there. In my every prayer for you all. So uh, Paul is saying that, you know what, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to take a look at that. He sees prayer here in verse 4 as an offering. Look at that. Always offering prayer with joy. That's important for us to understand. Having a prayer burden for other believers flows from a foundation of relationship. If we're invested in people, if we take the time to get to know them, if we fellowship with them and eat with them and just, you know, break bread together, then we are going to pray for them. You see, that's why the enemy wants us to scatter and not build intimacy. Why? Because if we scatter and don't build intimacy, we're not going to be aware of each other's needs. We're not going to pray for one another. We're not going to be helping one another get through, amen? And we need each other. We need each other. And so here, Paul says what? Always offering prayer. Uh, If I have no burden to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for the Christians in China, in the Middle East, if I have no burden to pray with you here in the church, that means my relationships with you are absolutely shallow. You see, if I have no prayer burden, it means I haven't developed a deep enough intimacy. My relationship with you is shallow. It's hello and goodbye and how's the weather and how are you today? It's superficial. Certainly with your own family, I know the needs of my family. I pray for my wife. I pray for my sons. Why? Because I have intimacy with them. I know them. I love them. I'm connected to them, and so should it be in the body of Christ. But that doesn't happen by accident. It happens on purpose that we make time to connect with each other. If I have no prayer burden, my relationships are shallow, and that needs to change. Absolutely, pray for the lost. Pray for evangelism. People got saved in first service today. Hallelujah, amen. They raised their hand and accepted Jesus. That's wonderful. That's the mission of the church. But we've got to be praying for each other, for our leaders and, and other believers. You say, why? Because... When we do that, the church will be healthy, and then when the lost come in, we can minister to them. You know, a church that's not healthy can't sustain growth. A church that's not healthy can't make disciples. Everything reproduces after its own kind. If we're disjointed and dysfunctional and we're not connected, when we bring people in, that's what we're going to produce. Oh, you're, you're wilting on me here this morning. But the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention uh, about how connected we are and the fact that we're praying for one another, that we have a burden for each other, that we would be a healthy church that could produce disciples. Notice Paul describes his prayer as an offering. And, and 
Paul thought about it like this. We think about an offering, you know, you come up and you pray and you thank God for your finances and his faithfulness, and you put your offering in there, and you, and you say, God, provide our needs, and thank you, and blah, blah, blah. But that's only one kind of offering. There are many different kinds of offerings. God wants us not just to offer money, but our time and our talent and our prayer, amen, because that's part of what it means to be a Christian and to serve. So Paul even saw his prayer as an offering. See that? And, I, and as I read this and the Holy Spirit opened it up to me, I, I was convicted by the question that is generated by this idea, what kind of offering am I presenting to God when it comes to praying for others in the body of Christ? What kind of offering? Is it a little bit, you know, a little tiny offering? Is it like, you know, my two cents in there? Is it sporadic every once in a while when it comes to mind? Or am I really praying for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for the, for the believers in persecuted churches all across the world? Do you know what people have to do in, in, in Muslim-majority countries or in China or in some of these places where the church is underground just to come together? All we have to do is get up and come here. Their lives are literally at risk. God help us to bring an offering of prayer that's worthy, that moves the hand of God, that shows that we're connected to the body of Christ. Verse 5 clues us in to the fact that a, a, a person's participation in the gospel proves that they have a right relationship with God. Listen to this. In view of your participation, say participation, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So the gospel is the good news. And the good news is that Jesus died for sinners to break the power of sin so that we could accept Jesus as Savior and be forgiven of our sins. Does that sound like good news to anybody? Amen. That's good news. Because you and I had a debt to pay that we couldn't pay. And Jesus stepped up and said, I'll pay it for you. It's like, you know, if, you, if the town sends you your tax bill and it's this inflated tax bill. And then there's a note from the assessor that says, your bill was paid in full. Did anybody get the Holy Ghost? Amen. Well, you got your taxes at the end of the year and the, the IRS sent you a letter. Your taxes are covered. You're paid in full. Amen. A little more joy. A little more Amen. And all that's great, and we get excited about stuff like that. Oh, my bill was paid. You know, you're at the diner and you're eating, and somebody pays your bill. You know, there's times we're at the Daily Planet, someone pays our bill. Stop doing that. But, you know, we would thought we would have got the lobster and the steak if we would. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, you know, when somebody pays your bill, you're like, it's a blessing. You're kind of you're humbled, amen? Well, Jesus paid our bill in full. Every sin under the blood, forgiven. Thank you, Lord. And in view of your participation in the gospel. Now, the world sees success in numbers. How many people you got? How big's your church? How many people? It sees it in titles or wealth or in fame. Are you a household name, you know? Uh, but God measures success in faithfulness. God doesn't measure success in popularity or fame or numbers or wealth. He, he judges our success on faithfulness. 
if you and I are faithful to do the things God has called us to do, even if that seems insignificant to you and everyone else around you, listen, if you do what God's asked you to do, when you step into heaven, he's going to embrace you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy, amen, because he gauges success by our faithfulness that we use the things he's given us and the gifts he's given us and that we produce fruit where he's planted us. So what does it mean to participate in the gospel? Three things. Number one, it means we're genuine members of the family of God through Jesus Christ. There's only one way to enter into the kingdom. There's only one way to function in the kingdom of God. And John 10, 1 through 3 tells us how. Truly, uh, Jesus says, truly I say to you, the one who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep listen to his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. There's only one way in the kingdom, and that's through the good shepherd who leads us in through the door, and that's Jesus Christ, amen? You can't get in any other way. You could try and climb in through works. You could try and climb in through religion. You could try and climb in through philosophy. But listen to me. The Bible says you're a thief and a robber, and and you're not going to be part of the kingdom. You're just going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus is the way in. So to participate in the gospel, first we've got to be born again through Jesus Christ. It's not works. It's not religion. It's not because your grandma was saved or your parents were saved. It's an individual salvation, a personal experience with Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, you might say, well, we, all, we know all that. Well, we should still be excited about that, amen, because we should still be cultivating our relationship with Jesus, and it should be stronger and stronger, amen. He's a good shepherd. He watches for our soul. He calls us. We're to hear his voice. He leads us. We're to follow his purposes. Number two, the second thing it means to participate in the gospel is this, that we're actively doing, supporting, and facilitating the work of the ministry. You and I have a part to play in the body of Christ. Today, the church is not about a performer and spectators. That, that's Hollywood, that's comedy, that's the world, amen? This is not a performance, and you're not spectators. Today, I am a conduit for the word of God, the Holy Spirit speaking through me right to your spirit, and you are children of God receiving the word of God under the anointing, and it's changing you from the inside out. That's what's really happening here. There's no performance. If this is a performance, I wouldn't even come back. But when we actively do and support and facilitate the work of the ministry, that proves that we're participating in the gospel. Listen to James 1.22. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Amen. We're to do what's preached here. We're to take these principles and and what God says, and we're not just to hear them and go, oh, that was nice, or yes, I agree. We're actually allow them to get through our mind and into our heart and into our spirit so that we live and breathe them, not just what we heard on Sunday, but what we do on Monday, amen? amen? Participators in the gospel. Number three, what does it mean to participate in the gospel? It means we're obedient servants, fulfilling our call and using our gifts. You know, all of us have to be obedient to the one who saves us, our Savior. I can't do my own thing. I've got to do Jesus' thing. 
you say, well, it's nice that you pick preaching as a vocation. Listen, I didn't preach. I didn't pick this as a vocation. I was called, amen? I didn't have a choice. I couldn't be obedient to God and just be doing my own thing. And you say, yeah, we know. We feel sorry for you, Pastor. You, you got called, but we can do whatever we want. Uh-uh. Sometimes I look at the body out there, and they just do whatever they want. And I'm like, ooh, I'm going here. I'm moving there. I'm going to this church. I'm moving to this state. Did God say so? Are you an independent contractor, or are you a servant of the Lord? Amen. Do you serve the purpose of God and the calling of God and use your gifts where you're planted? Oh, I know I ain't getting many amens, just a few people this morning. And the seats might be thinner next week, but that's okay. The truth is we have to be obedient servants. There's nothing else I could be doing this morning right now and still be obedient to God. This is what he's called me to do. And you do what he's called you to do. And when you do, you prove that what? You're not independent contractors. You're not consumer Christians. You're not, you know, people who just go with every wind and every whim. But you are servants of God and serve the purpose of God. And in doing so, participate in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is very blunt about those who give him lip service on this. Listen to what he says in Luke 6, 46. Now, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Think about that. Uh, there's more, but, you know, it, it, Jesus is like, you don't listen. Why do you call me Lord? That's the NIT, the New Italian version right there. You don't listen. And, oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. But he's not Lord. We're Lord when we do whatever we please and ignore the call of God. So he says, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts on them I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when there was a flood, the rivers burst against the house, yet it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great." You see, either we're going to be obedient and do the will of God and have a deep, solid foundation that withstands the storms of life, or we're going to suffer loss when we've built our own kingdom and it crumbles. So deep this morning, amen. I I hope we're hearing this. Because God wants to root that independence out of us and make us interdependent with each other, the body, and under the leading of the good shepherd. Independence is a dangerous thing because it gets us in wrong places where there's no grace. Paul reveals in verse 6 here, to me, verse 6 is the climax of this text. And he reveals his confidence and where his confidence is placed concerning uh, his hope for the Philippians church. Now, listen, he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he, and that he is Jesus, who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is showing his confidence here that he has a hope for the Philippians church. We're going to unpack this here because it's powerful. Confidence is a very beautiful thing. When you and I have confidence in our God, you know, when people see our faith in action that we believe, that we don't just say things or we don't just read the scripture, but we actually believe it and we live it and we have confidence in God to keep his word, amen? 
That's a very powerful thing. When I have confidence, it's not only going to bless me, it's going to bless people around me. You see, faith inspires faith. Confidence inspires faith. And, and, and you know what? I want to say something to the young men. You, you know, young men in this generation, or if you're unmarried today, and you, or if you are married and, you know, you, you want to be a good husband to your wife, you need to have confidence in your God. You need to have confidence in the Lord. Amen. You know, these men that, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know if I can work. I don't know if I can make enough money. Why would anyone want to be married to that? Confidence is attractive. Now, I didn't say cockiness. Nobody likes cockiness. But confidence, not in yourself, but in your God. Confidence is attractive uh, in every way and especially spiritually. So Paul says, I am confident of this very thing. And he's showing, you know, the, the very fact here that he's put his hope in a very specific place. And, and it's giving him peace with his anxieties and it's, it's giving peace to the Philippians. Now, Paul as a spiritual parent was subjected to all the same fears and anxieties that all parents wrestle with. Paul saw the Philippian church and all those churches and the body of Christ as his spiritual children. Now realize this, he's looking at them. He's trying to teach them. They're growing, some of them slowly, some of them are wayward, some of them are dense. Did you ever try and teach a dense person? Come on. Yeah, and Paul's worried about all of this. He's like, I don't know if this guy's getting it. I don't know if this person's going to make it. But why is he worried? Because he sees them as his spiritual children. And we know as fathers and mothers that, you know, for, for our children, we, you know, we, we have this hope and we have this anxiety that, you know, are they going to make it? Are my children going to be okay? Are they going to be good in this life and the next? Or are they going to excel? Are they going to do well? Are they going to be moral? Are they going to follow God? Come on, anyone feeling this out there today? If you're a parent... This generation, we're sending them to school, and they're telling them things in school that contradict everything that we've put into our children. They're, they're saying that this is wrong and that they're right. They can't even agree on gender or sexuality or anything, and, and they've got their own agenda. And last night when we were here as a men's ministry, we stood around that campfire, and we all stood up, and we joined hands, and we prayed that the angels that surround this place, that the Holy Spirit that's in this place, we prayed that it would tear down the strongholds across the street at that school, that God would be glorified, and that God would be lifted up, and that the wicked would be torn down. Amen. We need to take authority. We need to take our authority. I said to Pastor Mike, how is it that we've got the angels of the Lord over here and right across the street, they're teaching doctrines of devils to young minds. How, how, how can that stand? 300 yards away. Time for the church to stand up and take authority and tear down strongholds and stand against wickedness. We called for, we, we were bold. We called for the wicked to be removed. If they won't get in line with the, with the truth of God's word, then God remove them. You say, come on, that, that, that's kind of, you, you know, you really, but yeah, I really believe God has given us the authority to tear down, to bind, and to loose. Amen. I don't know about you today, but I don't want to sit back and watch this generation go to hell on my watch. 
I don't want to watch our nation slip away into godlessness on my watch. Some of us don't understand the authority we have. You just play in church out there, or, you know, oh, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, and, uh, but, you know, we really don't have any power. Oh, yes, we do, amen. We have the power to tear down strongholds in Jesus' name. So it's, it's confidence, and Paul, he doesn't place his confidence in himself. He doesn't place it in his, his apostleship. He doesn't say, well, you know, I'm such a great preacher that I know the things that I've told them and I wrote great letters to them. So, you know, I'll be able to hold them together even when I'm gone. No, Paul doesn't place any of his confidence in himself. He places it all in Jesus Christ. And the anxieties that he had for them were legitimate. Because some of them did fall away. Some of them did go back to the world. Some of them did fall for false doctrines. So it wasn't that Paul was worrying about something that wasn't plausible. It was plausible, and it did happen. But he put his confidence, not in his ability to hold them together, but in Jesus' ability to be faithful, to keep the ones that were his to the day of the Lord. Amen. So powerful today. Paul's anxieties weren't imaginary, and neither are ours. There are literally souls on the line that hang in the balance. You and I need to use our authority. You and I need to take authority over the the works of the enemy. You and I need to pray and fast and stand in the gap and push back the darkness because Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, and we need to take him at his word. Paul's confidence was that he who began a good work in you would complete it, that Jesus would finish what he started. Amen. Have your children accept Jesus? Did they get water baptized? Were they raised in church? Jesus is going to finish what he started in them. Amen. We need to pray and stand and believe. Jesus always finishes what he starts. You know, we get worried because a lot of us don't finish what we start. How many people are great starters? You got like 15 projects started. Nothing complete. I cleaned half of my desk, half of the garage, half of the lawn. You ever ever like that? And I just want to finish one thing, amen? Oh, I could see the carpet. I'm I'm good. This room is good. But we're, we're good starters. Sometimes not great finishers. But listen, Jesus is not like us. He finishes what he started, and it's because of his faithfulness. What did he say to the Father? I have not lost one that you put in my hands. I have not lost one. Yet Judas was doing his own thing, but he was never part from the beginning. But Jesus said, I haven't lost one. What's that all about? That's about Jesus finishing what he started. Hebrews 12, 2, and I close with this assures us that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. How did you get to church? How did you get saved? How did you, you know, become a child of God? You didn't lead yourself there. It wasn't because you were a good person. It wasn't because you were intellectual and understood doctrine, were able to discern truth from a lie. No, the Holy Spirit drew you and woo you and led you into the presence of God. And then you heard the gospel, and he gave you the gift of faith to mix with it. And you were born again, and he filled you with the Spirit. It's all God. It's all Jesus. It's not us. So he's going to finish what he started. Why? Because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. 
We need to see him as such, and we need to trust him as such, that he's going to perfect what concerns us. He's going to perfect the work in me and finish me and you too. See, it's important that we don't, you know, some people say, well, God's going to be faithful to me. And da, 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 da. He's going to be faithful to you too because he's no respecter of person. You know, when we get that perspective that, you know, not, not only is he going to keep me, he's going to keep them too. It gives us a little extra patience with our brothers and sisters. Did you ever get around some Christians? They're a little annoying. Uh, they're, they're a little slow. They're, they're, they're still a little worldly. And you're just like, man, I know he's going to take care of me, but I'm not sure about this guy here. Well, be sure, because he's faithful to them too, amen? And he's, maybe they're a little behind. Maybe you're a little behind. Maybe you just don't realize it. But he's going to take care of all of us. He hasn't lost one that the Father put in his hand. So have patience with yourself. Have patience with each other. Realize we're all works in progress. None of us are perfect, but we're under construction today, and he's going to finish the job. The Holy Spirit perfects us through the sanctification process. 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 18 talks about that. I'm not going to read that now, but if you want to check that out, you can, you can grab that and get in you. But sanctification is the process where the Holy Spirit conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. Why? We're part of the body, and we are individuals, but we're all being made into the image of Jesus. The point of the, the work of the cross was not to make a better version of Rick. It wasn't to make us super dizzy. It, it's that, you know, he's conforming us into the image of Christ, amen? A better version of Rick would still be lost and headed to hell. Well, he's a little more polite, but he's still crazy and he's still sinful. And I need to be conformed not to my image, not to the world's image, but to the image of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is doing that work in all of us. You say, how do you know? Because Jesus finishes what he starts, and he's going to do it. It's an internal, extensive, deep work that's changing us from the inside out. Our text reminds us that that process will continue until that day. Look what it says. I'm confident of the very thing that he who began a good work and you will complete it to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What day is that? That's the day when Jesus returns to get us. That's the day when Jesus returns to get his bride. You see, either way, whether we die or the church is caught up and taken to heaven in the return of the Lord, Jesus is coming for us. Jesus is coming for each of us. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That means when I die, my last breath on earth gives way to my first breath in heaven. Now, I know our flesh even has a hard time believing this, but there's no in-between, there's no soul sleep, there's no purgatory. We die here, we wake up in heaven, amen, and we go into the presence of the Lord. That's the Lord coming. What is that? That's the Lord coming to receive us. He brings us to him, and we're in his presence. Now, if we're alive when the Lord comes back and, and catches the church up, and he takes us to be with him, and we meet him in the air, as the Bible says, then that's him coming for us, amen? And we won't taste death, and we'll go right into the presence of God as he comes back. Uh, you know, either way, he's coming for us. Either way, he'll be faithful. Either way, he's going to finish what he started in you. Jesus is coming to get us, either by death or catching away of the bride, either way, he will continue 
to redeem us and conform us into his image by the Holy Spirit until that day comes, the day of Christ Jesus. Now listen, Philippians is all about joy. Though Paul is in chains, he's lost his liberty, he's under house arrest, he's surrounded by Roman soldiers, Paul has joy and he pens this epistle and the joy is flowing out of him. We should have joy because we have the gift of each other. We should have joy because our prayers are powerful and they work to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should have joy because we get to participate in the gospel, amen? We're not just spectators, we're participants with Christ Jesus. And we should have joy because we can be confident that Jesus will finish what he started in each of us. Let's bow our heads today. Father, I'm just praying here today that your people would be encouraged today, that we would have joy to know that even though we make mistakes and bad choices and we stray like all sheep do, you still love us, you still are committed to us, you're still going to be faithful to finish what you started in us. Father, I pray against the enemy who would discourage people and say, you're, you're not a real Christian, you, you're not saved, and God's done with you, you're disqualified. Father, I cancel every lie. And I speak life into the hearts of every believer here this morning that we would turn away from our tangents and distractions and run the race and use the gifts and be sold out to you to be poured out like a drink offering and to have joy in every circumstance in life. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, that sounds great. I want that kind of joy. How do I get it? You get it by coming to Jesus and receiving him as Savior and Lord. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ and not God raised him from the dead, you would be saved. Listen to me. Salvation is not earned. It's not bought with money. It's not earned by works. We don't have to be good enough or smart enough or know enough scriptures. Salvation is a free gift that Jesus paid for with his own blood on the cross. And it comes by us receiving him, by confessing our sins and receiving him as Savior. If you want to do that here this morning, you say, what will happen to my life? God will forgive you. He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. He'll change, the, he'll change the trajectory of your life and settle your destiny. You can have confidence to know when you leave this place today that you are saved and headed for heaven because he will finish what he started in you. If you're here today and you want that uh, assurance today, if you're here today and you want that confidence and you say, I, I want to receive Christ, just lift up your hand. How many people here today would say, I want to surrender myself to Jesus and have that confidence. Anyone need to do that here today? Praise God. I'm trusting we're all saved here. We had some people early this morning, first service, make that commitment. Let's pray a prayer together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for saving me. I, I pray you give me the confidence I need to face this world in every circumstance and have joy that comes from knowing that you will be faithful, that you will keep me, and I'm safe in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give him a hand clap of praise this morning. Thank you, Lord.